Welcome. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel, and today on the program, I'm so pleased to have George Bornstein here in the studio. George, welcome. Thank you, T. Uh, George's book, The Colors of Zion, Blacks, Jews, and Irish from 1845 to 1945, is hot off the press from Harvard University Press. Mm-hmm. Uh, right, George? That's a, that's, it is, and I'm so grateful to them because they priced it as a trade book rather than an academic book. Well, that's. So, I think that was wise because I think um, there's going to be a lot of uh, non-academic readers f- for this book, too. So it's nice so. that they have a chance at it, right? Yeah, indeed. <laughs> I never quite understood that the 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 price uh, escalation for the the academic texts, but anyway, that's probably for another show. All right. <laughs> and and George, you you chose the music for the program, and the first first song we got to hear was uh, Louis Armstrong. Um, so could you tell us a little bit about why that song and and uh, and sort of its how it connects to the colors of Zion? I would, T, and I'd be happy to. And let me mention that The Colors of Zion, the subtitle is Blacks, Jews, and Irish from 1845 to 1945. The Irish Famine. Exactly. God bless you. Very few people are picking that up. My original subtitle said from the Great Famine to World War II, and Harvard thought, oh, you know, we'll do, it'll be more, I don't know why, they changed it to the, the dates. I noticed that because when you sent the, the galley yeah. originally, that was the subtitle. It was. And I, I actually loved seeing the language of it rather than the numbers. So it's interesting the, it, to know it wasn't, yeah. They do. <laughs> and my book's argument, I I should say at the beginning, I have no wish to minimize the tensions, the exploitations, what we might call the nasty side of intergroup relations. But as I was teaching at the University of Michigan courses in these writers, I began to notice there was a whole other side that we've lost sight of. And that involved a cooperation, sympathy, mutual assistance. Recognition. Exactly. Recognition of similarities, uh, uh, recognition that they were 
were joint victims. Uh, the revived a clan in the early 20th century identified blacks, Jews, and Catholics as its three opponents. And so these groups had both common enemies and common cause. And uh, I'll hope we get later in the program to the beginning of the book with Frederick Douglass's tour of famine Ireland. But to answer your question about Louis Armstrong, he is a wonderful example of the kind of broad-mindedness, the identification with other groups that the book celebrates. Um, most people don't know that Louis Armstrong wore a Star of David around his neck his entire life uh, after he got out of the orphanage. And that's because a Jewish family in New Orleans, the Karnofskys, uh, made sure he got fed regularly. They, even according to one version of his autobiography, bought him his first horn. I love that story. Uh, isn't it? And out of tribute to them, Louis wrote it. And there's a famous photograph that was published in Metronome, the jazz magazine, of Louis uh, with his shirt unbuttoned to his waist, holding a reefer with that insouciant smile of his. And uh, you can see around his neck the uh, Star of David that he wore his whole life. I'm and just flipping to it here. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You <laughs> see that great, around his neck? It's a great... That's my favorite thing from the book. And I tracked down the photographer. He's a guy called Herb Snitzer, who's now retired in Florida. And he told me that Louis Armstrong was the least prejudiced human being he ever met in his entire life. And in the book, Arge, I'll just read you two short quotes about that. Uh, one, uh, Armstrong was occasionally given a hard time by people who's black people saying you should just play with African Americans why are you playing with those white boys and they were boys then uh, rather than girls and Louis gave the answer he said um, uh, race conscious jazz musicians uh, nobody could be who really knew their horns and loved the music and that, to me, is a wonderful uh, remark. He said things like that his whole life. When he was in Lebanon uh, on a Middle Eastern tour, the uh, Lebanese Arab journalists gave him a hard time because his next stop was Israel. And he said to them, uh, congenially, it was a very friendly interview, he said to them on air there, he said, you see that horn? That horn ain't got no prejudices, and neither do I. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> That that's and that's amazing. Like that that that's also something that he. It's not as if he <sighs> thought about saying that. That was just like the core belief there. And and it it seems like he even he said. Um, let's see in in the book, George. Uh, it was the Jewish family who instilled in me singing from the heart. Um, and that that the the Karnofsky family uh, kept reminding me that I had talent. They could see that I had music in my soul. And so maybe that's that idea that we all we all have music. In our we soul. do, and he, our uh, Armstrong, uh, thought of music as something that uh, just automatically went beyond narrow group aesthetics or barriers. And uh, that song that you played in lead in the Irish Black Bottom is a song he was co-author of. The Black Bottom was a big hit in early 20th century America as a jazz tune, and the Irish Black Bottom was part of a lifelong uh, invocation from time to time of Irish materials. Louis was one of the first uh, jazz men to tour Ireland. 
And he went there, and he was very well received, as he was well received everywhere. Uh, who has not loved Louis Armstrong's music? And he is an example of uh, someone who, therefore, gets beyond his own group and connects with other groups, identifies with other groups. Uh, as uh, Herb Snitzer said, and I mentioned it before, he was the least prejudiced person uh, one could imagine, and. Very many members of these groups, blacks, Jews, and Irish, were that way at the time. Do you want me to keep going? Yes. Yeah. I. I. I love. I love that. Yes. What else? What else, George? Don't. Don't stop. Go on. All right. Well, I won't. Well, I'll say another word about jazz and then go back to the beginning of the book and, 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 and its arc. Well, actually, I'd. I'd love to ask a couple questions sure. about you then. But. But say a word about jazz. All please. right. Well, we... you know, most of the black jazz musicians uh, felt the way Armstrong did. Uh, um, uh, very. Very. Uh, Many of them, the trumpeter uh, Miles uh, Davis uh, had in his trio uh, uh, the white pianist Billy Evans, and this was during the Black Power days, and he was given uh, some trouble by the Black Power leaders, and he writes in his autobiography about this, and pardon my French here, I'm following him, he said, I don't hold with that shit, he said, (laughs) you find me a better pianist than Billy Evans and I'll hire him. Okay, that's, well, George, that... See that's and that is that's actually like the through line for the book really is mm-hmm. that these these moments where um where people are are seen across boundaries that other people have 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 put there and then no one's bothered to ask questions about for a while. That's right and I think that when our various uh, academic separate departments were founded. They were doing important work, and they were um, was there they more? needed to defend themselves. I mean, re- re- you know, recuperating lost literature. Uh, when I was in graduate school, nobody read at black Princeton. literature at Princeton. Uh, but this would be true of my undergraduate work at Harvard too. I don't think I ever read a black creative writer uh, in my whole education. This would be in the sixties. And uh, so this all came in very recently, uh, and I had to re-educate myself uh, about these things. And because I did, I think I have a kind of little bit of a non-standard view of them, and I was reading them looking for connections because I believe in connections and between groups. I almost called this book Lost Connections for that reason. Yes, and and that's... and. How long would you say, George, that you've been working on this book? Because if you've been going out in your own um, in your own study to try and find materials mm-hmm. and readings, have, can you even say a beginning point from when this this project started? Well, it's very hard to do, but I would say when I became interested in the whole subject uh, is the way the book begins too. The very first thing that got me going was uh, Frederick Douglass. Well, I'll tell you what, why don't we, why don't we take a short break and then we'll come back. And would you mind starting us off with reading that, George? I'd be delighted. Okay, great. All right. You've got Living Writers today on the program, George Bornstein, his book, The Colors of Zion, Blacks, Jews, and Irish from 1845 to 1945. We'll be back. Hello. The weather is frightening, the thunder and lightning seem to be having their way. 
But as far as I'm concerned, it's a lovely day. The turn in the weather will keep us together. So I can honestly say that as far as I'm concerned, it's a lovely day. And everything's okay. Yes, isn't this a lovely day? To be called in the rain. You were going on your way. Now you've got to remain. Yes, just as you were going. Leaving me all at sea The clouds broke They broke And oh Welcome back. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel and today on the program George Bornstein is here. His book, The Colors of Zion, Blacks, Jews, and Irish from 1845 to 1945, just out with Harvard University Press. And and a quick shout out to Amelia. Thanks for the publicist, George's publicist. Yeah, for, Molly for, Atlas at Harvard. And, Amelia Atlas. And and for sending the book. Thanks, Amelia. Um, so so George, the the music that we we just heard. Then, can you tell us a little bit about about that Irving Berlin clip that we Absolutely. heard? Absolutely, that was uh, Ella Fitzgerald and Louis Armstrong, assisted by him. If anybody could ever be assisted by <laughs> Armstrong, uh, singing "It's a Lovely Day" an Irving Berlin song, and our Irving Berlin was, of course, um, a Jewish writer, the most famous Tin Pan Alley writer of the early 20th century. Uh, like so many Jewish uh, Tin Pan Alley writers, his father had been a cantor, and uh, so uh, uh, he got into music that way, but in a much more secular way. And the idea that this is uh, Ella Fitzgerald and Louis Armstrong singing this Jewish composer's songs is another good metaphor for the book. Nobody thinks that Irving Berlin's songs belong only to Jewish Americans. Uh, We understand that he was an attractive composer and that... Uh, Ella Fitzgerald has just as much right to sing it as a Jewish singer would, and that this does not mean that African Americans are appropriating Jewish culture. In fact, T, I, I often wonder what it means when people talk about appropriating culture. I mean, if a Jewish pianist plays a Mozart sonata, we don't think that that person is appropriating uh, German-Austrian culture. Uh, what would that mean? When Paul Robeson sings uh, Yiddish songs, as he did in his concerts, and were big hits, nobody thinks that he's performing in Jew face or appropriating Jewish culture. It's in the nature of culture to cross these boundaries. If it weren't, I don't know how we could read any literature. I don't know, uh, for example, that would mean... Men could only read their own gender, and they couldn't read Emily Dickinson. Uh, Women could only read their own gender. They uh, couldn't read Shakespeare. Uh, 
uh, we could only read 20th century Americans because we are them, uh, this idea that the culture belongs to some group or gender or even century seems to me contrary to the whole notion of culture. And how could there be any understanding if it's not something that you're trying to connect to or by singing a song, by singing someone else's words, it's, it's within you then immediately. Absolutely. And this was, uh, I point out in the book, nowadays it's very fashionable to be down on The Jazz Singer, the film. It was originally liked, you know, and now for about 20 years it's been fashionable to critique it as uh, blackface, uh, the, you know, the... Uh, white George, people are showing they're not black or something. George, before I read your book, I, yeah. I actually, for some reason, I thought when you had mentioned it over email, I thought, um, oh, it's a, like the Neil Diamond. Like, is there, like, I oh. immediately thought of some whole different thing. So I was sort of, I was surprised when I came to that section of, of the book. Yeah. That's right, T. And it is the first talkie is the way it's usually yes. referred to. It was a huge hit. And for 20 years, the scholarship has all been about how it's demeaning to black people. None of the scholars I noticed who say that ever quote a single black person of the time. And I went, in fact, one book, very good book, published by a major press, says that, tries to make a virtue of the lack of evidence by saying, well, you can tell black people didn't like it, African Americans didn't like it, because no major African American paper reviewed it. Well, let me tell you, I have a file at home, an inch thick. Every major African American paper reviewed it. They loved it. Arguably, the most important was uh, uh, the Amsterdam News, as it still is in New York. And the reviewer there said every colored, that was the word they used then, I'm quoting now, every colored performer in the country owes a debt of gratitude to Al Jolson for what he's done for colored performers in this movie. And this was echoed throughout every, it played to uh, sold out audiences in every ghetto in the country. It was... uh, uh, because this was praise. before, oh, oh, George, because this was before there was um, uh, like a, an all African-American cast on Broadway, for example. Right? That's this right. Was, and, so it's proceeding. And incidentally, the first American, uh, the first all African-American cast on Broadway was Shuffle Along uh, a year before the jazz singer. And it only got on Broadway because Al Jolson, the most famous actor of his day, backed it. And he insisted it. It was his friends, uh, Noble Sisley and uh, the other one who did that. And it was due to them that the, the thing got there. His own views were wonderful on racial relations. When he heard of black performers who were friends of his in Hartford one time had been denied service at a restaurant, he went and picked them up and said, come to dinner with me and we'll see if anybody objects. And of course, Jolson was the most famous actor of his day and nobody objected. His views were exemplary. When he died, the Union for African-American Screen Actors sent a huge wreath to his funeral uh, as well. So I think we've really misinterpreted it. And we've done that because of this vice I see a lot uh, of back projecting current attitudes onto the past. Really, uh, as uh, the novelist J.P. Hartley remarked in The Go-Between, which became a Dirk Bogarda movie, uh, the past is like a foreign country. They do things differently there. And we have to do that. And for me, this is how the book got started with Frederick Douglass. Do you want me to talk about that? That would be great. Could could we hear a little bit from from the book, Absolutely. This is the passage by Frederick Douglass that is really, not only is it at the start of this book, but it was the start of the project. It's what 
keyed my interest. Uh, I'd been working on Frederick Douglass, and I was mentioning him in a course in Ireland. Most people don't know, Frederick Douglass did a tour of famine Ireland during those horrible years of the late 1840s when almost uh, over a million people starved to death in Ireland. Uh, the population was reduced by half. It was horrible, horrible suffering. And Douglass sent back reports that were published as the lead article in The Liberator, Garrison's journal in New England, which was the leading abolitionist journal of the time, the most important force uh, for uh, uh, eliminating slavery. And in one of them, he gives a heart-wringing picture of the misery of an Irish cabin. It's important to remember he was a Victorian. He'd read Dickens, as everybody had. And you know, this has a little bit of a death of Little Nell quality. He begins, I'd heard much of the misery and wretchedness of the Irish people, but my experience has convinced me that half of it has not been told. I took occasion to visit the huts of the poor, and of all places to witness human misery, ignorance, degradation, filth, and wretchedness, an Irish hut is preeminent. Imagine four mud walls six feet high, occupying about ten feet square, covered or thatched with straw, without floor, windows, or chimney, a pine board, a pile of straw, a man, five children, and a dog, in the door, doorway, a pit into which all the dirt of the hut is scraped. Here you have an Irish hut or cabin, such as millions of people in Ireland live in. And then he says, and this is what triggered my interest in the whole subject. He said, I see much here. Uh, in, they live in much the same degradation as American Negro slaves. I see much here to remind me of my former condition as a slave in Maryland, he means. And I confess this is Frederick Douglass still. I confess, says Douglass, I would be ashamed to lift my voice against American Negro slavery, but that I know the cause of humanity is one the world over. He who really and truly feels for the American slave cannot steel his heart to the woes of others. And he who thinks himself an abolitionist but cannot enter into the wrongs of others has yet to find a true foundation for his anti-slavery faith. And I was so stunned by that, we just don't expect an African-American ex-slave to uh, say that. And I became interested in how could Douglas do that. And of course, I found he regularly identified with other groups. He may have been born a slave, but he became tremendously cosmopolitan and articulate. Uh, in his autobiography, he cites... Uh, uh, Sheridan's, quote, mighty speeches on and behalf of Catholic emancipation as choice documents to him. And when he went to Ireland, he met Daniel O'Connell, the Irish nationalist leader who was leading the fight for Irish emancipation and voting rights for Catholics and so on. And he and of course, O'Connell had been a fierce opponent of American slavery. Not all Irish were. There were Irish who supported the slavery, but O'Connell was a fierce opponent. He said, if I may adapt, said O'Connell in a monster rally, the words of the poet Milton, the slave owners are the lowest of the low and ever in the lowest deep, a lower deep. And uh, Douglas said, after I heard that speech, Douglas was there, I was resolved throughout my life to always honor Daniel O'Connell and his sentiments. And so uh, this was an early example of this black Irish cooperation of which the Louis Armstrong song we began with is a later one. And of course, not just blacks and Irish, but uh, a great many Jews uh, got into this as well. And can you, and what was, so this was the the first moment, the first spark. It was. George. And then uh, what was then the next step that then where you 
Well, where maybe how how did the Jews become part of it? Because there you have um, uh, African American and Irish represented. You do, and, then, and the next step. Uh, well, we can also illustrate with Douglas. I began to notice that these two groups kept invoking Jewish writers as the third group uh, most often. If I'd had time, by the way, the Italians were the fourth, but I had my hands full doing three. Uh, I, I wish I had had the time next to do book, the George. Next book, okay, and uh, so that Douglas himself. Uh, for example, in his famous speech on what is the 4th of July for the Negro, very famous speech of his. Incidentally, given on July 5th because uh, I'm using the word of the time, Negroes as they were called then, African Americans now, uh, uh, blacks in between. Uh, I tend to go back and forth with this. I don't want to offend anybody and want to make clear I'm using historical terminology. Uh, he there very early on invokes a Jewish text, uh, one of the most famous psalms of them all, that is always, invo- not always, 137? regularly invoked. 137, it's the one, by the waters of Zion we sat down, yea, I wept as I remembered, we wept as we remembered Zion, they said of us, give us music, how can we play music uh, in this land? I quote this in the thing, uh, he quotes it in there, and so do most black uh, Writers, and just to stay with the 19th century for a moment, uh, most people don't know that up until the black power movement, nearly every major black intellectual, and I'm using the word black now to include Caribbean and African as well as African-American intellectuals, were strongly pro-Zionist and viewed Jewish liberation as a model for black liberation. A good example is Edward Blyden, who was perhaps the most famous black intellectual of the 19th century, wrote a pamphlet uh, in praise of, he said, in praise of this marvelous movement, Zionism, which can be such an inspiration to black people. And so this uh, went on, and just to stick with the Zionist theme for a moment, Theodore Herzl, who uh, is of course the wrote the founding text of Zionism at the end of the 19th century. He was an Austrian journalist. He said, thinking of the Irish leader Charles Stuart Parnell, "I long to become the Parnell of the Jews." I long to become the Parnell of the Jews. So I this, think I underlined that part, George. Did yeah. you? Are you of Irish background yourself? Um, yes. Oh, My good. grandmother came over on okay. the boat. Yeah. As 40 million other Americans. Uh, <laughs> a, uh, people. Big boats, yeah. That's right. And well, good for her. Uh, so I noticed that, and I noticed that Herzl himself, he also wrote a novel called Old New Land about uh, you know what it would be to found a new state, in the course of which he has the main character remark, at the end, now that we have solved the problem of the Jews, the next step is to solve the problem of the blacks. And so here is this Zionist leader uh, continually calling attention to Irish, to blacks. And to, looking forward to and, reach forward. Yeah. yeah. And this was the way it was up until, I would say, the late 1960s. And people were aware of this. W.E.B. Du Bois was a strong supporter of Zionism and uh, wrote about it. His One of his best friends was uh, the first, uh, not the first, but an early executive director of the NAACP, uh, Joel Spingarn, who was himself Jewish. And Du Bois dedicated a book to Spingarn. He called him a knight of equality. 
K-N-I-G-H-T. Yes, and, uh, yes. So these things went back and forth, and uh, I think after the break, I might uh, say a word about where they end up, which is World War II and how these bonds were still going on. But they were all the way through these common causes, uh, and it's not that there were not problems with the Irish and the blacks. We all know about the draft riots in New York where the Irish uh, uh, you know, beat up on the blacks. Uh, we know about black Jewish tensions in the 20th century, uh, and I have no desire to deny that at all. What I do want to say is my book is about the other side of the coin. It's about people from any group who reach out beyond their group. And uh, uh, and uh, after the break, I'd like to move to the concept of the righteous Gentiles of World War II and what that is, because they, to my mind, are the ultimate example uh, of this. And, and, and George, um, when you're when you're out there going through, like finding a whole file folder of um, newspaper clippings uh, about uh, oh, the the film, the the, the, the show, jazz the jazz yeah. singer, the the. Um, so it's like how I mean, it almost feels like like how do you even um, shape the project because it's so. I mean, you you sort of alluded to that by saying, "Well, I would have included the Italians," <laughs> but but for how do you shape the project? Right, I had my hands full with just three, and I divided it into. Uh categories finally and so the chapters are on after the introduction there's a chapter on races that we can get into because racial categories are tremendously unstable and change over time and that's something we need to remember nowadays so for example in the census when there's the controversy over all the little boxes and can we have a mixed race box census categories have always changed over time in our country. So I have a chapter on that. I have a chapter on diasporas and nationalisms. Then the flip side of that is a chapter on melting pots, one on popular and institutional cultures. That's where Louis Armstrong comes in. And uh, then the last one is on the gathering storm of the 1930s. So it's organized in a semi-chronological, semi-topical way. And there's a sort of overlay back and forth. But I try... Not to go too much earlier than 1845, the famine, and or too much later than uh, uh, the the Second World War. And but but I love how you have like these threads that that where people are reemerging. Like Emma Lazarus comes in, yes. but then um, further into the book, then she returns with um, connected to the Statue of Liberty. Um, so anyway, it's it's lovely. We'll take a short break. We'll come back. Um, we'll talk about the the righteous Gentiles and and Very more. Good. Okay. Okay. Uh, Today on the program, we have George Bornstein here. His book, The Colors of Zion, Blacks, Jews, and Irish from 1845 to 1945. We'll be right back. I wanted to sing this song for our young people today. So our young people will understand what Black History Month is all about. The black man has an unusual heritage. Even today, when you look at our history, you can see so much of Moses and the Hebrew children. For 400 years, they were down there in Egypt land. For 400 years, we were slaves. 
right here in this country. But then there came on a young man named Moses, led them through the wilderness, going to the promised land. He didn't make it to the promised land. He went up on the mountain and said, I have a dream. I see black and white walking hand in hand together. That's Martin Luther King. But can you see the same thing with Noah, with Moses? He didn't make it to the promised land, but he went up on the mountain and said, I won't make it there, children. But I see you going there. If you search out your history, Welcome back. You've got Living Writers on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. I'm T. Hetzel, and today on the program, I'm so pleased to have George Bornstein here. Um, George, you are Professor Emeritus here at the University. Yes, I retired a couple of years ago. And there was a huge conference. I think that might be the first thing I knew about you. I saw posters with your face on it and, um, and, and the faces of... Uh, uh, James Joyce and, and others are, yeah. and, and there's a, 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 a lovely conference and, and readings by uh, Linda Gregerson and Thomas Lynch That's right. and, and talks by students of yours that are now um, teaching at universities mm-hmm. across the country um, that, that must have been something else but... it was a wonderful experience for me I felt as though the department was uh, really too kind, uh, but I must no. say I enjoyed every minute of uh, being told how much I'd done for two days, and especially by my former graduate students who are now professors, uh, a couple of them are deans, uh, some of them are chairs of departments, and I always devoted enormous time to my students. I never understood this idea that you had to be either a researcher or a teacher. I always tried to do both, and I invested a a lot in my graduate students, and I'm proud to say, with one or two exceptions, every one of them got tenure track jobs in their field. Nearly all of them got tenure, and uh, that's and no small feat in today's. Uh, no, it's not. The job scene, especially yes. in the humanities, is awful, as you know, and because you you know you know a lot of writers and are a writer yourself. Uh, so I was very moved by the students, and people often. Um, uh, don't understand, I think, sometimes that it really is more blessed to give than receive. And except for the achievements of my own children, uh, I can think of few things that make me as proud as I am of those students. I just love it when they succeed. And uh, and some of them are friends of mine to this day. And I look after them. When I was given uh, uh, an award for graduate student mentoring by Rackham, I I unintentionally made the room laugh. I didn't mean to, but uh, I just said, well, I conceive if you're directing a thesis, you're responsible for that person until they get tenure. And I always uh, made sure uh, that I did everything I could to advise them and help them. And I feel as though I've gotten back so much from them for that. Well, then I'm so glad because I, I, I didn't have a chance to go to the conference, but I was looking at the panels and w- what some of, I can only, uh, well, I imagine some of your students, the ideas and, and the things that they brought to the panels. It was so extraordinary what it seemed like you encouraged them to really, um, like what you're doing in this book too, like taking these leaps out 
word. Oh, always. And, you know, and it is, and to try to help them not be a copy of me, but to be a better version of themselves, to be true to themselves while they're doing it, I think is really essential in teaching, as it is in love. I mean, you try to help the other person fully realize themselves, uh, whether it's your uh, partner, your wife, your friend, your children, uh, you don't try to make them copies of you. That's a mistake. Yes. And, uh, uh, and it's just, uh, it, the Bible really is right that it um, it is very gratifying to do that. And it's one of the deep pleasures of life. And it took me a while to learn that. When did, because really, that's what I was going to ask, when did you know that your vocation was to be in, in academia, but to be such a proponent of the teaching aspect of... Well, the uh, teaching and the research together. I mean, I, I do feel the University of Michigan doesn't have to be like a baseball team that right. has players <laughs> who can't hit or players who can't field. We have players who can hit and field, and we have very good students. They deserve good teachers who are also good researchers. I, I came to academia slightly late. I My career trajectory... Well, that sounds odd to say because I was a professor very early, but... I didn't know when I went to graduate school that I wanted to do it. It was the Vietnam War was on. I'd won a Woodrow Wilson Fellowship. And I thought, well, I'll try it for a year. They're going to pay me to read books. I love to read books. And um, and it wasn't until I was writing my thesis that I thought, this is really terrific. I'm learning stuff here that will be helpful to people. And uh, and that became my first book. And, and what what was the thesis? Was it was it on Yeats? Or, or? It was called Yeats and Shelley. Okay. And a, a lot of my work, I realized the thread that goes through it is connecting things that often aren't connected. And in those days, modernism and romanticism were considered opposite. And so I was trying to connect uh, two writers who were thought of as opposite. And of course, it was easy. It was like uh, the Colors of Zion research. As soon as you go back, I mean, Yeats writes an essay in which he says, Shelley shaped my life. So it's not as though, you know, I had the... <laughs> you didn't have material that you could... Yeah, yeah, yeah and he so... mentioned Shelley hundreds of times. He wrote two essays on Shelley. But it's as if at some point someone decided it was better to keep the, it's yes. them separate. So our understanding... I, yes, but how can that be? That's right. And so this is run right through my first three books were connecting modernism and romanticism. Then I got interested in editing and where do these texts come from? And so I edited um, three books of Yeats, out of which, though, I got interested in editorial theory and how do you do these texts and where do they come from? And particularly because Yeats was always authorizing revisions. He would publish his poems in many different versions. And every time there was a collected poems, he'd revise. And then there'd be another version of really well-known poems. And so I began to think, what is the text of a poem by Yeats? And I decided it must be all those versions put together. There is no one version, though we want there to be. Uh, uh, that really, and Yeats on his deathbed is still revising <laughs> his poems. And so then I started putting editorial theory and literary criticism together. And I did that. And then I began to teach courses in ethnic literature, which was not taught when I was in college, but now, it, of course, it is, and it's very important that it be, except that my courses in ethnic literature kept making these connections, and it started with the Irish course. I noted this drumbeat uh, of connections to uh, African Americans, and of course, the um, uh, if I can use the N-word for a moment in a historical quotation, the Irish were called white 
niggers when they came to this country, the most offensive word one could imagine. And I wanted to make clear, I'm not using that word. I'm saying, you know, that's what was used historically. Uh, and they, uh, most people don't know, the Irish took the most dangerous jobs in the slave South for no motive that says anything good about anybody. It's just that slaves were property and were expensive property. You could get an Irishman off the boat, send him down into the coal mines, send him uh, into the floodplain, and if he drowned or was blown up, you get another one off the boat tomorrow. So it doesn't say anything about kind attitudes toward black people. It just talks about the, you know. And, well, the Irish were more expendable at that They were point. expendable, exactly. Yeah. And so, uh, and, and I noticed that all these uh, connections kept being made, and black writers um, would say things like, I can identify with the Irish because my people are oppressed too. And, uh, and the same thing with Jews. Uh, many uh, African Americans would identify with Jews. In fact, uh, there's a film uh, from uh, uh, Hitler to Jim Crow about Jewish teachers, refugees from Nazi Germany, and they came to this country. The only places they could get jobs were in black schools and colleges in the South, historically black institutions. And they tell, and some of their students who are now successful African Americans in middle age, tell about how they couldn't believe these people were white. They said, uh, we thought anybody who'd suffered that much must be Jewish like us, must be black like us, especially if they'd been slaves. And you'll notice that in Go Down Moses, which was our introductory music to this system, is a perfect example of black identification with Jewish tradition. The Irish did that, too. One of the most famous speeches in Irish nationalism was by J.F. Taylor, and he did an extended analogy of Moses uh, being told by Pharaoh, why are you resisting us? We are a mighty people. You are few and weak. We are powerful. You are, and so on and so forth. Uh, only he meant the Irish and the English. And so uh, in the Irish course, I then begin to notice the Irish-Jewish uh, parallels, of which there are quite a few also, and uh, even historical connections. Uh, the first chief rabbi of uh, uh, Israel was actually Irish, and the first president of Israel was Irish. It was Irish Jews who emigrated there. And there's all this stuff. The when the IRA uh, was successfully overthrew the British and uh, you know declared independence in 1922, uh, one of the most famous Jewish leaders, a rather extreme one, more extreme for my taste, Jabotinsky, wrote to Ireland. He said, "We're going to end up fighting the British in Palestine. Who knows how to fight the British?" The Irish do, said Jabot. He writes to De Valera, the head of the Irish government, and says, can I come and learn your tactics? De Valera says yes. He turns him over to Robbie Briscoe, who was the highest-ranking Jew in the Irish Revolutionary Army. And uh, he and Jabotinsky hit it off, and Jabotinsky studies for a month, and then Jabotinsky himself says in his autobiography, I went back and I reorganized our forces along the lines of the IRA. Wow. No one knew this. It was sitting in a file in Tel Aviv where I discovered it. And I asked the librarian how many other people have ever looked at this file. And she started laughing and said, you're the first person that even knew there was a file like that. And, and how I did put you, it into the book. How did you like? How did you get on the trail of that? I got in the George? trail by reading Jabotinsky's autobiography. And is he the one that took the code name Michael? 
Uh, that's an, uh, that's another oh, one. I'm that sorry. was okay. Sh- that was Shamir who became uh, prime minister of Israel. Took the code name Michael, in which you're remembering, in homage to uh, Michael Collins, the great Ir- the greatest of the Irish guerrilla tacticians. So there was all this identification going on, uh, which has been lost to history. I would then ask, you know, even Jewish professors who feel with Zionism, are there any connections to the Irish? And they'd say no. And but and there this are. Is just, and but and how did you know that there was this file there in Tel Aviv, George? Uh, I didn't. What I discovered was there was a Jabotinsky Institute in Tel Aviv, and the people at such places are often wonderful to researchers such as myself. So I emailed them out of the blue and said, "I'm a professor at the University of Michigan, and I'm on this project. Do you have any files of Jabotinsky's correspondence with anyone Irish? For example." Robbie Briscoe, and they wrote back and said, yeah, we got a whole file. No one ever asked to see it. Uh, And they said, uh, if you come to Israel, you can see it. And I needed to come there because, amazingly enough, uh, the author of the play The Melting Pot, which is what made The Melting Pot phrase so famous, though it goes back to Emerson, uh, was an English Zionist leader whose papers are in Jerusalem. So I wanted to see the original versions of manuscripts of the melting pot. I was going to be in Jerusalem anyway, and the University of Michigan and the Mellon Foundation were wonderful in supporting this research. And uh, so then I thought, well, I'll go to Tel Aviv, too, and look at this file. And I go there, and there's all this material. And uh, What happens when that, when you, like, at that moment, George, can you tell us, like, were you just, like, dancing around with, like, this file folder? Internally, or, or, yes. Like, <laughs> you weren't tossing the papers, obviously, it's, into it's the air. It's a great but... moment. Uh, it's a great moment. And and this, there is so much in the archives. I once published a book with Scribner. It's called Under the Moon, still in print. Uh, I wanted to ask you about that. Which are yeah. uh, unpublished early Yeats poems. And uh, I couldn't believe I was finding poem after poem of Yeats in, in archives that had never been published. And so I, Scribner owns the U.S. copyrights. Well, and I said, would you like a book of this? They said, you bet. And so uh, that's where that book came from. And, and with Scribner owns the copyrights of poems, just if they are to publish any of Yeats's poems, they get to publish They them? own the United States copyrights for all of Yeats, for all the material which is in copyright, which is everything before, I think, 1914 now, or maybe 1920. Which is and strange, because it sounds as if you found these poems. I did. And then, then suddenly they become their... Unpublished manuscripts are copyrighted in perpetuity, as long as the heirs are known. And so the actual owners were Yeats's two children... Uh, Michael and Anne. Michael became a senator. Anne became one of the leading artists of her generation in Ireland and a good friend of ours. And so I first had to ask Michael and Anne, and they said, sure, but you understand that for you have to go through our agents, and for Britain, that's A.P. Watt, and for America, it's Scribner. Ah. It was Macmillan then, but now it's Scribner because Scribner bought Macmillan. And were these manuscripts that they had, and then they, them, they shared them with you, or was it when you were some, on like researching, you found some of these? Well, yeah. All of the above. Uh, one of them I found in a shoebox in Michael Yates's basement. <laughs> and, uh, Michael Yates had a tremendous collection of his father's manuscripts, and was always the Yates family were exemplary in their openness to bona fide scholars. And uh, so I, um, he let me go through his collection. I found several poems in his collection that had not been published. They were in manuscript form. And then as we were leaving outside the safe, there was this shoebox full of papers. I said, what's that, Michael? And he said, well, those are 
my uh, more manuscripts. I said, do you mind if I go through those too? He said, of course not. And there was one of the poems was just in there with all these other papers. And uh, Michael was also a practical joker. He once said to me, apropos, remember Yeats wrote that famous poem, Lapis Lazuli. So he said to me once, would you like to see the piece of Lapis Lazuli? And I said, well, absolutely. I'd love it. And he said, well, it's right here in the living room. We go there. I'd always thought it was small. It's big. And lapis lazuli, if anyone ever pulls this trick on you, is very heavy. So he hands it to me, and I almost dropped it. It was so heavy. And what flashed before my eyes was, oh, God, I'll be known forever as the scholar who broke the piece of lapis lazuli, and I'll be disgraced. (laughs) uh, So they were good. And Ann Yates became a friend of my wife's because they watched the royal wedding of Charles and Diana together. And at the end of that, well, I was going through manuscripts in her house, and at the end of it, they discovered they had very similar senses of humor, and Anne became a dear friend. Uh, we have one of her paintings over our fireplace to this day, and she is the subject of the poem, Prayer for My Daughter. My wife, Jane, once asked her, what does it feel like to be the subject of a famous poem? And Anne said, well, and with characteristic humor, she said, it does sort of trail around after one. <laughs> well, George, we'll take a short break, and okay. then and then we'll come back. Um, All right, you're you're listening to Living Writers today on the program. George Bornstein, his book, The Colors of Zion: Blacks, Jews, and Irish from 1845 to 1945. We'll be right back. Go down, Moses, way down in Egypt. Got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel, and today on the program, George Bornstein is here. The Colors of Zion, Blacks, Jews, and Irish from 1845 to 1945. Thanks to Brian Delaney for engineering, um, finding us um, these these tunes, playing them for us, and uh, making us sound good. Right, George? Absolutely. <laughs> Thank you, Brian. <laughs> Shout out to you. <laughs> and so, George, earlier on in the program, we actually, um, I feel like we made a promise that we should at least touch on the righteous Gentiles. Absolutely. And, and the last image of the, the book um, is quite lovely with a sculpture. Um, and I didn't, I didn't know if that would be a, a good place to start. It would. Even uh, though it's the, at the end of the book. <laughs> I was grateful to Harvard for letting me have 19 full-page illustrations in this. And this is a statue... Uh, by a sculptor called Slomo Stellinger, and it's in the Hall of the Righteous, uh, it's right outside the Hall of the Righteous in 
Yad Vashem. Now, Yad Vashem is the Israeli Holocaust Museum, and by Israeli law, they have a hall of the righteous Gentiles. The righteous Gentiles are those who are non-Jews who risked their lives to save Jews during the Holocaust. And what moves me is the legislation setting this up described this as an absolute duty of Jews and of the state of Israel not to demonize the other. And this is meant to remind us that in the worst of times, there were still members of the other groups who were reaching out to Jews across this. And this becomes, in my mind, a metaphor for everybody from Frederick Douglass onward. Frederick Douglass was being a righteous Gentile when he identified with the Irish. All the people I cite uh, are, are righteous Gentiles of whatever group. They can be black, Jewish, and Irish. And the sculpture that you mention is particularly moving to me because the sculptor is a concentration camp survivor. And that, to me, makes this even more uh, moving. And, uh, and did you see it? Where you, did you go and yes, see the sculpture? Yes, I did. I, I went to the museum, which which is just uh, as like the American one. I, I find these heartrending. Uh, same as going to slavery museums or something like that. The, the harm that people are capable of visiting on each other never ceases to astonish and depress me. But by the same token, the fact that some people resist that and rise above it never fails to hearten me. It's, uh, you know, really, I think, a wonderful sign that this can happen. And so my book is trying to talk about the righteous Gentile side, meaning not just people who help Jews, but anybody who helped members of any group other than their own. I think that's so important nowadays uh, that we do that. I want to mention particularly uh, nowadays, too, there's this big controversy right now over the census and over these categories into which we sort ourselves. It's important for people to remember these categories are artificial. They have changed every time there's been a census. And our current five-fold scheme, where you can be African-American, Caucasian, Asian, you know, the five ones, only dates to an obscure directive of the Office of Management and Budget in 1970. It's either 1977, Directive 15, or 1975, Directive 17. I can never remember, although I discuss it. And uh, it was never meant to be used this way. It was just meant to monitor compliance with the Civil Rights Act. But because it was measurable, that's where our current schemes come from. We are the only country in the world that uses that five-fold scheme, just as we're the only country in the world that has what's called the one-drop rule for African-Americans, which states that anybody who has even one drop of African blood uh, is black. But but is, isn't that something so far in the past, George? Well, it is, except it's still with us. It goes back to, Wait, of course, slavery. What, the the one-drop rule? But, yeah, why would that? that I, I don't think... That well, could be a rule that's walking around today. Is sure, it, it is. Yeah. People, how many people say Obama's black, even though he's mixed race and talks about himself as a mutt? The University of Michigan for admission: if you have any black blood, you will be classified as African American. I see. Okay. And I'll tell okay. you uh, one thing I discovered on the census with the mixed race box, uh, and this is because I had access to a very high level person who asked me not to identify them by name at the census department. You can check as many boxes if you want, as you want. If one of them is a minority and the other is white, you will be reclassified as the minority in the following way. For any use anybody would put this to, the Census Bureau is obliged to furnish the data in disaggregated form. And then the various government bureaus, Civil Rights, Office of Economic, they re-aggregate it, uh, changing 
what you do. So you can say you're mixed race, but if you say you're uh, Asian and white, you'll be classified as Asian. If you say you're black and Irish, you'll be classified, reclassified as black. For oh, but if you just check brand. one box, mixed race. But if you check then, mixed race, then, then you'll just be in that one. It's, it's, it's strange, this need for categorization. It is. <laughs> and especially nowadays when there's so many mixed race people in the country, the yes. numbers are estimated to double every 10 years of mixed race people. And so it that's, seems as that's though the way forward. <laughs> it seems as though it's time to maybe rethink this uh, perpetual sorting of people into categories. Yeah. After all, ethnic purity was a dream of the Nazis. There are no ethnically pure groups. As uh, the African-American cultural theorist Cornell West says, uh, there is no such thing as a civilization that's not hybrid. Everything is mixed. And uh, so we might remember that, too. And I think remembering these righteous Gentiles helps us do this. And, of course, in academia, uh, we used to... You had discriminate. a colleague that you also had, had... I did. His name was Lemuel mentioned. Johnson, who had a deep influence on the book and on me. He was the first highly educated African intellectual whom I met. And uh, he said to me one day after we'd become friends, our children had played together, I gave, alas, one of the eulogies at his funeral. He said, um, uh, and he taught here for uh, over 25 years. He had a degree from Michigan in complete. Uh, he said to me once, you know, the way Americans think about race is really crazy. He said, we Africans don't think that way. When an African-American comes to Africa, he said, we think he's American. Just as if a Polish-American were to go to Poland, the Poles don't think he's Polish. They think he or she is American. And so that was the other big influence on the book. I began to think maybe this perpetual sorting into categories is part of the problem and that we should try to get beyond that and recognize our common humanity. And the book is really a plea for recognizing, yes, we are separate. I mean, for I, for example, am Jewish and I'm and proud of it, I might say. At the same time, uh, I was in the civil rights movement. I try hard to identify with other groups. And I think members of other groups do the same. And that I learned this too from my students. And my students feel that they are sometimes pushed into these categories that they don't fit. They know what the politically correct response is, and they will give it if asked. But if you can get them, I finally taught a course called Lost Connections my last few years at the university, and uh, the students loved it. One the ghost them, title of the book. Yes, and one of the and the students used to say, this is the first time we've ever been able to talk frankly about this, and it turned out a third of the people in it were mixed race. And they said, this is the only course in which we've been kind of validated. Uh, is that that's a legitimate thing to be. And uh, uh, so I, I think that the time is right for this book. It's meant as a contribution toward really harmony in our society. And the first review of the book just came out. The book's only been out for two weeks, but it, uh, it was in England in something called the uh, Higher Education Supplement, which is a big circulation there. And what I was most pleased at, it was a very favorable review, so of course I loved it, but uh, <laughs> is that the reviewer used the word in his last sentence. He says, above all, this is a humane book. And that is what I would like people to see it as. This is an effort to be humane by showing all these black Jewish and Irish people for the last uh, century and a half who have themselves been humane and who I think are what we should model. And and that uniting um, part of, of mm -hmm. in this scholarship of yours, <clears throat> instead of um, drawing the fine distinctions or the divisions, mm -hmm. but this this compassion. Absolutely, I think it's not that the divisions aren't there; they are. But that's all we've heard about for a, a good long while now. And I think it's time to just let the pendulum come partway back and realize what we have in common too.
And we should mention before we go um, is that you're going to be reading it. Nicola's um, over in, in um, Westgate. That's right. Tuesday, it, March 26th. So t- Tuesday, March 26th at about 7 o'clock. 7 o'clock at Nicola's Books in yes. the Westgate Shopping Center. And there's a new date in April there's a date, Barnes & Noble? Uh, yeah, I don't have the exact date in my head because it just happened yesterday, but it will. Uh, it's in, uh, I think, the second week or so of April. I'll be reading at the Barnes & Noble on Washtenaw on the way to Arborland. And I think the fact that these stores are interested in that speaks to people want to hear this. When I first uh, went to give lectures on this in public, I was very nervous. And I discovered that nearly everybody there loved hearing this message. Why do you think you were nervous, George? Like, what oh, I was afraid I'd be criticized for not being politically correct, and that, uh, and I was per- particularly worried about uh, 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 what uh, organized Jewish groups and African American groups might say. And I remember I I gave the first talk ever co-sponsored by Celtic Studies and Afro-American at Harvard. And at the end of it, this huge black guy got up to ask a question. And I was kind of edgy uh, about what he might say. But what he said is that when he was growing up in rural Georgia in segregation days, they used to sing... Roddy McCorley and what he later learned when he got to Harvard were songs of Irish revolution. He said, we thought Roddy McCorley was a black civil rights leader. And uh, and he said, we sang all these songs and he rattled off several more. And he said, so I love what you're saying. This has been so written out of history, but this is the way it was. And so here's this guy. He's a witness to it. He's a witness to it. And a lot of people have come up to me and uh, uh, and not just from America, but a lot of uh, black people from the Caribbean or from Africa have come up to me and Jewish people and Irish people. I was a little concerned about how that would go over in certain quarters. Uh, but and Tom, Tom Lynch. Blurbs the back of Tom your book. Lynch did, uh, and I, Lorna Goodison. Also. Lorna Goodison. I gave a talk in Ireland, uh, out of straight out of the book. It's the Nationalism's chapter. Seamus Heaney, the poet, came up afterwards and hugged me and said, "George, that was magnificent. People need to hear that." Uh, well, let's. That's wonderful, George. Thanks for being on the program today. Well, thank you for having me, T, and for giving the book the exposure. I just believe in its ideas so much. I hope it gets out there. Yes. Well, and and here it goes because it's this is just the beginning of its journey. Um, you've been listening to Living Writers today on the program, George Bornstein, his book, The Colors of Zion: Blacks, Jews, and Irish from 1845 to 1945. Thanks for listening.